Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership funk and soul guitarist, singer, and composer Mark Anthony Jones, better known by his initials MAJ. Since the early 1990s, he has recorded and performed with international stars and artists, including Mark Bronson, George Benson, Jay Z, Janet Jackson, Shaka Khan, Roy Ayers, Chardet. Donna Summer, Maxwell, Masters at Work, Common Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Erica Badu, Martha Reeves, Nick Acosta, Michelle Indiocello, Maceo Parker, and The Roots. He is presently working on his solo debut in a documentary titled The Funk King of Greenwich Village. Mark, That's thank me. you for joining me, man. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure, Scott. I love what you do. Thanks oh. for having me. Oh, man. It's, uh, it's my pleasure, too, and thank you. And, uh, Mark, where are you coming to us from today? You're overseas someplace. I am in an area of England called Cheshire. 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 Yes, excuse me. Um, it's about an hour away from Manchester. And I live on a farm in the middle of nowhere with just my music and nothing else. It's the nearest store is four miles away. And I don't drive. So... Yeah. I'm I'm out there. Yes, that mm. sounds pretty good to me. You know, uh, I I you know where I, are you I, based? based well, at? you know, I'm originally from Los Angeles, so I came from the hustle bustle craziness of of all that. And then uh, in '06, I moved across the country to North Carolina to try to get a little bit of what you're talking about, not mm. to that extent, but uh, you know, a lot more uh, trees and you know, a little more open spaces and things like that. So. Totally understand. Well, now you're in New York, correct? No, no, I'm in the Charlotte area, North Carolina. Oh, you see, still there. I thought for some reason you were in New York. I don't know why. Maybe because you just said the East Coast before. So I, yeah. I always associate that with New York, sort of. But um, oh, it's great. Well, yes, I live in 
the rustic capital of the world. I have cows and I wake up to the sound of mooing and uh, chickens and it's wonderful. By the way, I'd love to say a hello to my landlord and his wife, Karen and Brian, because um, that's really kind of my only connection to anything around this area. And they're so wonderful to me, they're so supportive. Yes. Okay. Very good. Well, so, uh, you know, you're obviously a transplant overseas, but uh, you mm. spent, you know, plenty of time in New York City. Um, yes. You kind of, you know, grew up there and, uh, you know, I think you got your start pretty young doing some talent shows and things like that. Mm. Okay. So maybe you could uh, fill us in a little bit about, you know, how you gravitated towards music in those early years. Wow. Uh, wow. That's a big one because I do nothing else. I've never done anything else besides music. Like, it's all I, I, there was a period where my father was a baseball player and he actually had done some things with the Yankees and been shuttled around to a few different teams and he hurt himself very young. So his career didn't go anywhere, but he sort of, I feel, kind of was living vicariously through me a bit. So, you know, I constantly was getting baseball mitts for Christmas and birthdays and and uh, we would go to Yankees games and he would know a lot of the players. So I was very much like, this is what I'm gonna do. And uh, that was pretty much the only thing for a period of time, probably from the age of like nine to, 12 that I was seriously into baseball. I used to have uh, scouts coming from universities to come see me play because my father put in the word that like his son is going to be the next Reggie Jackson or something. So um, yes, but musically um, the first thing I guess that blew my mind, if you will, was my mom took me to see the Jackson 5 when I was four years old. And she was only uh, 22 at the time. She had me when she was young. And so I remember going to Radio City Music Hall in New York with my mom and her girlfriend, I believe it was Phyllis was her name. And they were screaming, like, my mother is going hysterical. And... Uh, Everyone else was going hysterical. And I'm seeing this guy spinning around and singing and dancing. And everyone is just like, Michael, Michael. So that, that really was the first thing that made me realize that this is even something you could do. And uh, look like the best job in the world. So from the time I was four, I just wanted to be michael jackson and i i remember being like in a kindergarten and organizing all these kids together to be uh jackie and tito and marlon and and i was michael in school at home it's just what i did so i would have to say it was the jacksons that opened up that whole thing for me hmm? Do you, Hope do you remember, that answered your question sufficiently. <laughs> yeah. So was 
What, do you remember what tour that was or how old Michael was at yes. that time? Or Yes, yes. That would have been uh, when they were doing... It wasn't a tour, I think. I think they were doing various dates with other acts. I, for some reason, I think Blue Magic just rings a bell because my mom was really into them. And uh, Harold Mel no, Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes. That's what I believe it was. Um, and uh, I think they were doing their residency at the time in Vegas. So it was probably around 74, 5-ish. So, yes, that was the, yeah, if you know anything about the Jacksons, it's a time where they sort of had perms for a brief little moment. They were sort of not afroed, but curly, and they had like a orange and pink suits, and it was very uh, Las Vegasy. yes. Yeah, I was thinking. I don't um, think that was a tour. I think they probably were between Motown and CBS at that time, probably. Yeah, so Michael was like a teen at that point. 15, 16, yeah. somewhere around there, yeah. yeah. Mind-blowing. Dancing machine, all of yeah. that. That was oh, yeah. that time. Da, da, yeah. Da, da, Jesus. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, that's when his... Uh, his the spotlight of him as a dancer really took off was right around then. Yes, yeah. I'm so glad that you you know that because before that he was just a cute little James Brown kid, but at that point it started to be like, whoa, this guy must have been watching Soul Train or something because he got all the latest, all the latest moves. You know, absolutely, like, yeah, blew my mind completely, <laughs> completely. All I remember. From my childhood, it's just living for Michael Jackson. And to see him on a magazine cover, you know, it would make my month, my week, whatever. I, I love that guy tremendously. Still do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So how did your own um, abilities, though, progress as a singer and instrumentalist and those things? Oh, wow. Well... Um, obviously as a young four or five year old child, I, I don't have any real, uh, training or anything like that. So for me, it was just trying to catch the Jackson five, wherever they were on, whether it was the Carol Burnett show or these magazines, which I lived for right on or any of those types of things. Um, and eventually what happened is I went to see the Jacksons a second time. And that was really like it for me. Like, okay, this is definitely what I'm going to do. That would have been the uh, 81 tour, which I believe, I don't know, maybe the Triumph tour it was. Wow. Saw that at Madison Square Garden in New York. And uh, wow, it, it it just blew me. I still think that that's, that's the peak of Michael's talent, in my opinion. Not Thriller, but like at that tour, he was singing for real. There was no props. There was, and he was hitting everything just like on the records. 
better even. So you can hear a lot of that on the um, Jackson's Live Tour uh, album that came out, which you're probably familiar with. Um, I saw this concert, blew my mind completely. I already was crazed because Off the Wall had come out about two years earlier. I got that for Christmas, and everyone in my neighborhood knew I was Michael Jackson. So, you know, I went to school with the white socks, the whole off-the-wall look, if you will. And you, so, had the, um, you had the MJ initials, you know? And I had the initials, and and I was the only one, I think, at that time. It's a little weird because, you know, the Jacksons, they had their shake your body down to the ground and all those kind of later 70s hits. 78-ish. But I think largely there was a feeling that their peak had passed. You know, there were no more cartoons and they weren't like the biggest selling thing going anymore. And when I saw that 81 show and then it was followed up by the album, like I just remember coming home from school every day, putting that album on and trying to recreate what I saw in the mirror. So I wouldn't say I was learning music necessarily or even singing, but I was a master impersonator in the mirror every single day, trying to copy what I heard and recall what I had seen. So um, basically, eventually, um, this was actually more after Thriller was out. I started meeting musicians and people were interested in me being in bands, local bands where I was living at the time, which was Queens, New York. Um, and I got a harsh realization at that time that like, singing along with records is very different than having a microphone in front of you and you have to belt it out yourself. So I don't think I was really that great. I just remember auditioning for different bands where they would play Billie Jean and I would get at the mic and I'd be singing the same way I was singing with Michael. She was more like a beauty queen. And this obviously wasn't projecting. So, you know, I kind of learned quickly that there's a bit more to this than just, you know, the surface of it. So uh, that's pretty much where it started for me, like um, just trying to be Michael Jackson with some live musicians. And at that time, of course, you know, he was the biggest thing in the world. So most of the bands around Queens were very open to the idea of a little Michael Jackson-ish sort of fellow up front. So I just started meeting a lot of musicians and uh, still had no interest in playing music, like playing instruments. And um, until my dad, uh, who was very upset that I had given up baseball, he basically sort of 
bent bent the rules a bit and he was like all right if you're really into this michael jackson stuff then you need to check out this other guy prince because he writes his own stuff he plays his own instruments and if you're serious about this you need to like diversify a bit so we went to go see purple rain i didn't have any interest in purple rain i didn't have any interest in Prince. I thought he was a weirdo, kind of, because if you were into Michael deeply, Prince was the enemy at that time. There was a big rivalry going on, which I'm sure you remember. Uh, 82, 83-ish, the 1999 time when he was being talked about quite a bit, but he was still the guy undressed licking himself or <laughs> something. He wasn't quite a... And fo following Michael's footsteps, getting MTV exposed. Yeah. Of course, all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I had a few friends in school who liked Prince because he was more normal in the sense of, like, he had vanity. He had pretty girls and that worked a little bit better for them than what Michael was doing at Disneyland with the kids. So, uh, so I knew about Prince. I knew he was important to some people, but he just didn't do anything for me. He was the enemy. We went to go see Purple Rain. And honestly, Scott, by the time let's go crazy finished the only thing i wanted in the world was a guitar and to be as cool as that guy was and it just hit me that like this is something else this isn't this isn't just something you can get from looking in the mirror and copying some moves or whatever this is like he's got some real skills that you don't see every day and so uh michael did obviously as well but this was just like a revelation to me like wow the girls in the art in the theater were screaming in a way that they never screamed for michael it was more like mm, i want him i want <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't uh Michael's cute. More sexual tension. His llama or his a monkey. It was like, mm, I want some of that Prince. And so I was, I was coming into that age where I wanted some of that kind of attention, I guess. And so I just knew I had to get a guitar and I had to do what he was doing on the end of Let's Go Crazy. So um, my grandmother purchased the guitar for me. My dad's mom, rest in peace. I love her so much, Louise. Uh, and I just spent every day with no lessons or anything, just standing in the mirror. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here and pretending I was playing all this Prince stuff until I started getting with other musicians again to possibly be a singer in their band or whatever but now it was guitar as well so fortunately i got in a band um 
a friend of mine named Mark Adams, uh, not from Slave, but uh, is that his name, Mark Adams? It is, is it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, so I thought. So, uh, bass player, I think. But um, yeah, Mark Adams, who's a phenomenal jazz keyboardist who's been playing with Roy Ayers for 20, 30 years now. Um, he he started taking me around to some musicians and there was a band in Queens, New York called uh, Jamaica Queens specifically um, called One Blue Shoe. And uh, this band had the reputation of being the best Minneapolis-ish band on the East Coast. So they were booked all the time, playing all the colleges and venues in Manhattan in New York City. And uh, I was a kid, 13, 14 years old. But getting into this band, I had older people who played instruments who would show me things. So we'd be playing a song and the guy's like, oh, put your fingers here, do this, do that. And just from doing that and studying videos, like I lived on the VCR in the 80s, I, even though my mom didn't allow me to use her VCR, I did nothing else. I would just come home and watch things and ask people to tape things for me and study. And that's how I learned music, honestly. like. I remember the Prince, uh, the Purple Rain tour video, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that came out, I think it's from Syracuse. Mm -hmm. Like, I lived and breathed this video. Everything that I heard that sounded good, I would just rewind, 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 for months and years, and just, I got all the licks like that basically and from that i just that just kind of is how i i still am that way I, I sometimes i actually feel scott that i'm more a fan than a musician because um i'm not really the person you want to put in a group of musicians to talk small talk with musicians that's not my scene at all um the music to me is is a, it's a very personal thing like i love certain people and i've just always wanted to study these people and learn exactly what it is that i love about them so much so whether that was michael or prince or stevie wonder at a certain point like i lived and breathed music on my mind talking book, inner visions, fulfilling this first finale, like those albums. There was years of my life where I didn't listen to anything else. Like my whole world was Stevie and his chords and his melodies and his whatever. So, so eventually, of course, from that, you'll pick up a lot of cool, chords and stuff i'm talking really going deep with this like 
being on eBay, buying all the 70s songbooks and memorabilia and just trying to pretend I was there during those that era. And literally, like, I'm getting a Fender Rhodes. I'm, I'm doing it. So, so I think a lot of my success comes from that, that people see me and they, they get a sense that I maybe remind them of one of the greats, sort of. And to me, that's just from literally studying it, like... Um, when I met Amir from The Roots, like, we just hit it off immediately because he's totally a collector, too. And uh, everything he had or was trying to acquire, I already had it because I, I've, I've just I had like that James Brown and Michael Jackson with Jay uh, and Prince video that's so known now. I, I had that in the 80s on VHS. And that was from trading people. I gave, I gave like six months of guitar lessons to a guy who knew a guy out in California who had that tape. So I got like the worst 500th generation copy of this thing. But that was like an essential thing for me. How I've got to see Michael Jackson, Prince, and James Brown together. Like, so... I think I'm still that way, you know. I'm a I'm a big fan of music and uh yeah, and it never stopped. I'm still exactly the same way. Hmm? I've sort That's... of run out of people to follow now though, unfortunately, kind of. Yeah, I can understand that. Um so great to hear all that though because, you know, I mean, you touched on three that are so important to me also, you know, especially mm -hmm. Prince and Stevie particular um because i just love uh, the guys that can really play the instruments too um i know, I know. yeah um, that's why i wanted to be on your show because i said wow this guy is like me in many ways like i'm a what you do i could see myself doing it in a sense you know it's not just playing music or writing songs to me i really love everything about the way things used to be. Unfortunately, they're not anymore. But, you know, I'm a funk diehard person. Did, did you ever get to meet any of those guys? Yeah. Uh, I never met James Brown, but I did meet Stevie uh, twice. First time I was in a Sam Ash music store in Manhattan, New York, 48th Street. And I was just, uh, I think I had a record deal at that time. So I was looking for some high-end equipment, you know, speakers and various things. So they had a certain room in the back where they would keep all this stuff so you could listen properly and things. So I was back there totally unaware that they cleared out the shop, the, the main part of the shop. So I come out and Stevie Wonder is coming through the door. Like, they closed up early so he could try out keyboards. So I got to sit there and watch Stevie with his daughter having, like, a whole little performance. And so I got to say a word or two to him. You know, I love you. I listen to you all the time. And I think I told him a few of the things I was doing so he would know I'm an actual artist as well. 
And that was a pleasant experience. The second time um, I was doing a show with Kid Creole. And this is actually one of my craziest memories. Um, my mom came to that show. It was in Atlantic City. And it was at uh, the Trump, Donald Trump's hotel. Forgot what it was called. Maybe Trump Tower or something. I don't remember. But And so Stevie was performing there. And his show was before ours. His show ended before ours. So he came to see Kid Creole and the Coconuts. But he brings Eddie Murphy with him. And he brings, well, Donald Trump sat with Eddie Murphy and Stevie at the table watching us. And so my mom didn't have a seat. She was just standing up. And they invited my mom to sit at the table. So my mom sat and watched me with Donald Trump Eddie Murphy and Stevie Wonder. So that's one of my family's uh, big nights, if you will. You know? So, yes, I didn't get to talk to Stevie at that time, but he's wonderful. I, there's nothing I could say. I think he's probably the best ever, in my opinion. It's hard to say that, but I bet you if you came, talk to came, everybody. came first before the other two. Yeah. If you talk to anybody that knows or any of your guests, you just ask them, what do you think of Stevie? I'm sure you'll you'll get an earful. You know? He's whew. Wow. Just just take the vocals. Forget about the songwriting, the the music, or any of that. Like, oh yeah. He's, he's arguably the greatest singer even. I think he's the greatest dude. You know, I don't sit around listening to Stevie and I don't even listen to any of his music past the 70s. Just it's not exactly my kind of thing. But um, that stuff that he was doing, Tuesday Heartbreak and all those. Oh, oh. Yeah, touch my God for sure. Woo! Woo! Wow. Mm. <laughs> he had it. For sure. For sure. So even yeah. his sideburns were super bad. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, well, I don't know if you've heard me say on another show, but one of the very first 45s I ever bought in my life was um as a kid little kid was, you know, living for the city and higher ground. Oh, and so man. I was I was in it from the get-go with that stuff. Of course. Of course. That yeah. song, I can just remember being a child and that song had such a mood, such a feeling, like those chords, it just, without knowing anything about music, it felt heavy. Like, it, it just, you know, I can't even explain that fully. It's just, uh, wow. That's all I can say. I play that for my kids sometimes. I pull up the roads and play that song just because it's such a iconic feel you know it's just i can't even talk about him don't you worry about a thing all that stuff inner vision oh yeah he just, oh. he just he just radiates something you know different way beyond the norm <laughs> just way beyond like i was listening to golden lady recently and just 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 the way he keeps going up at the end and golden lady and golden lady go like god go stevie go 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 and then when you actually think this man is 
playing drums and keys and bass and writing all these arrangements and like layering all those vocals vocals this guy's like what was he like 22 or 23 at this like <laughs> come on come on we mm. we're in a different time basically yeah mm. yeah yes sir and so did did you ever cross paths with prince or michael uh prince definitely uh michael no the closest was i won a competition because i we didn't i didn't touch upon that but i wasn't just in the mirror practicing i was winning competitions all over new york i was every like uh boys club of america that had a talent show i was there winning every time all the school talent shows um even went on television a couple of times because as you know like 83 ish was michael mania and so i there was lots of opportunities to do my michael jackson dance i had every little hip-hop kid in jamaica queens yo do the michael jackson man do the michael jackson so um i i won a competition on uh i believe it was new york one it's a tv station we have and they said basically if you come down to the world trade center uh which is now gone or you know about that uh 9 11 um they said if you come down there and you're the best michael jackson dancer look alike guy you win two tickets to go see and meet michael tonight at giant stadium and so it was the bad tour and so my very good friend Corey cutler who's a he's he's a comedian he's doing pretty well for himself out in la he's used he comes on a lot of late night shows doing sketches and stuff like that like if they have like a guy they want to shave his back or something he's that guy he's he's quite a character so um he called me up and he's like come on i'm picking you up we're not going to school we're going down to world trade center and so he picked me up i won not even trying i just happened to have the whole michael aesthetic the curls and the everything else and so we had tickets to go meet and see michael at giant stadium that night unfortunately we got there a little late i was trusting corey to get us there on time and we got there late so i didn't get to meet michael but we saw the show it was great and uh that's pretty much the closest I came to meeting Michael. Mm -hmm. But yeah, sorry. What was the rest of your question? Did I ever if, meet any of these people? If you ever met Prince. Was your... Oh, yes, definitely. Um, wow, we're going a little ahead of ourselves. But yes, um, years after being, I guess, what you'd call a professional musician, I started working with lots of people who had affiliations with Prince but again I'm getting ahead of myself because I was managed by his sister uh for a period of time so there's Ta a lot of Prince in my life. no 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 Sharon Sharon yes um there's a lot of Prince in my life just 
a tremendous. Okay. All right, well, let's we can work our way back to that. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, keep us chronological as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, so it all makes good sense. Mm-hmm. But um, hey, I was curious at that uh, Madison Square Garden show with the Jacksons. Was that mm-hmm. Stacy Ladisaw? Was she opening? Yes, I believe she was the opening act for yeah. that. Yes. It was Stacy Ladisaw and the Jacksons. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I've seen some posters of that like on, on eBay that I was considering purchasing. Yes. I had her on recently and she was recounting, you know, that experience and how much it meant to her and all that. So it was very fun to hear her oh, tell you that. You know, side I watched a few minutes of her interview, but I, I just got up to the part where she was discussing that her mother, she felt, was living a bit vicariously through her with the singing career. So I, I need to rewatch that. I like her quite a bit. She seems like a a good lady. Good yeah. And morals and values. And I respect that. Yeah. And she totally removed herself from the industry, you know, in her young twenties. Um, mm-hmm. you know, she was disillusioned by that whole situation and followed her own, you know. Sounds like myself. Yeah, a lot of similarities with that. So, um, music business is is not uh, not the place for the faint of heart. I believe is the the, the saying. Um, it's it's definitely a you got to play the game, and if you're not up for playing the game, you're gonna be out quite often. You know, Kid Creole often says that. One of my biggest problems is that I don't know how to compromise. And it's not that I don't know how to compromise. It's just that I wouldn't be myself if I wasn't being myself. And I'm not, I'm not, just not that sort of person that would see much benefit in lots of women or parties or, you know. Just, it's hard for me to talk about that. I, I've had quite quite a few crazy experiences in the music business. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm coming from, you know, I've learned, especially from doing this show, um, you know, Queens, so many amazing musicians and musical people yes. come from that part of the country. I mean, it's as steeped in that as any part of America, I believe. You I know, agree with especially you. You know, with, thank you. That's yeah. true. That's the truth. It's like I hear people talk about Dayton, Ohio a lot, which obviously has got some giants. But Queens, New York, I mean, honestly, when I was a teenager, like when I was in these bands, this particular band, One Blue Shoe, I told you about, that was very Prince-influenced. Um, a lot of those guys, which I told you were older than me, they knew all of these queens guys so we'd have like bernard wright at our rehearsal or lenny white or omar hakeem or just like all these luminaries just chilling out like sitting on the couch you know so i didn't really know what i was experiencing at the time it's it i was young and none of that music really touched me. It's like, if you would have told me about Weather Report or any of these things at that time, I, like, whatever. So it's very funny looking back now and just realizing I had like 
masterful people around me. The people who were showing me little tidbits are, were almost unanimously legends. So kind of interesting. Hmm? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Mark, what would you say was, you know, aside from the talent shows, was your first sort of big break, uh, you know, in terms of studio work or, or, or a touring or, or something like that? Yeah. Well, the most, uh, impactful thing that happened to me during that time was the band I was in, One Blue Shoe, we won the Apollo Theater Amateur Night competition twice. And um, I think, you know what we actually performed? We performed Crazy, uh, Sly and Jesse Johnson. Crazy with the steps, crazy for you. So, yeah, and people loved it. We had all the steps. We were literally the time. Like, we, it was just an amazing period. That band, we had a house, and it was just music round the clock so it was nothing for us to learn choreography or anything we we were always together we'd be in mcdonald's ordering something doing our steps just like just for fun so by the time we hit the stage we were as tight as you could be it was we i didn't have to look at them to know what where we're at and what we're doing so we won the apollo and the first prize was you get to go to a studio in Manhattan and you get to record like a big time studio. You get to record a three song demo. And so when we went to the studio, uh, which was called Planet Sound, and it was run by a gentleman named John Grossbart. And uh, this studio changed my life basically when i went there with the band we recorded our demo and we never really finished any of the songs but the owner of the studio and his wife hope john and hope they took a liking to me i think it was because i was a little bit more focused on the show aspect being a star trying to be like Michael or Prince or something. Whereas the other guys were a little bit more older and just maybe not as uh, appealing to someone looking for someone they can mold. So they made me a deal separate from the band to like have John produce me and to try to make some, try to get me a record deal of my own. So, I spent uh, probably about two years or so. I was about maybe 16, 17 at the time, just being produced by John. So he would have real strings come in. He was trying to turn me into a Sam Cooke sort of person. That was his world, uh, soul. And so he had all these great thoughts about ideas about making a movie and I would play Sam Cooke and he would produce this thing. And so eventually um, I became roommates. My first and ever roommate was the engineer that worked at the studio. 
Neil. We were around the same age. He was a little older than me, but he was like a an intern kind of person. So we both got an apartment near the studio in Greenwich Village. It's my first place in Greenwich Village. And we just used to go to the studio all the time. Like we'd have nothing to do at home. Let's go to the studio. There's no sessions in. And we just experiment constantly. Any music I was into, I would just try to recreate it. So like somewhere there's boxes of tapes of all of those Stevie albums. Cause I was literally recreating the songs, making uh, my versions of everything that I loved about Steve. That was my heavy Stevie period. So um, it was amazing. It was amazing. I had all the access to all the vintage equipment you could want great studio tape machines like it was unprecedented how much experience or hands-on experience i got from that so that's really where it all crystallized for me not only that the studio was very big in the black music world so you had Anyone who was making records in New York-based, Planet Sound recording was on your radar. Like, I I would regularly see Roy Ayers there. His drummer at the time, Dennis Davis, kept his drums there. So, like, when he would do gigs, they'd be stored at Planet Sound. So he was in and out regularly. But Bernard Purdy was the same. He kept his drums there. So like a typical day when I was a teenager would be going in the studio and there's this older gentleman fiddling around on the drums. And I'm just like, ah, nice to meet you, sir. Okay, hello. And then my manager's like, you know who that is? That's Bernard Purdy. He played on Aretha and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wow, cool. But I'm still a teenager, so... It, you know, if his name isn't Prince or Michael Jackson, uh, it's okay, but it wasn't that thrilling to me. So, but eventually, as I matured and you start looking at credits on the records I loved and whatever, I was like, wow, I was like so blessed. Um, I, everyone came through that studio, Anita Baker. Even Donny Osmond, uh, New Kids on the Block, and Johnny, what's his name? Johnny Kemp just got paid. Like, uh, another day it may be, uh, what's this guy? Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. I believe they recorded that's their big song, the show, their Lottie Dolly, or whatever it is. I forget now. But they, I saw all of this going on. Like, I saw so many iconic hip-hop people, Run DMC, just everyone you can imagine came through Planet Sound. Um, Bob Marley, before my time, used to go there and rehearse like and things like that. So uh, so that was really the, the thing, being a part of Planet Sound. Eventually, it like... It was 90s groups like Jodeci and all these people would be just hanging around. Just like it, it was the place, if you will.
you know upstairs we had this guy author baker who was producing like some of the most amazing hip hop it was just it was called the music building 30th street uh between 7th and 8th avenue in manhattan anyone who's new york based has been through there you know mm -hmm. it's where you rehearse that whole building was just music stuff and planet sound was on the ground floor so Hope that answered your question a little bit. Did, did you know who Sam Cooke was? Not necessarily. You know, I mean, of course, if somebody would have played a song, uh, What a Wonderful World or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, yes, I know that song. Or, But no, but I was open to it because um, it was a new world for me. You know, I was in New York City. Every time I went there, I got to order Chinese food. So I was just like, mold me. Whatever you want me to be, I'll be. Just keep that uh, chicken and broccoli coming and, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I I learned a lot. I learned. I got a whole history of soul. John gave me so many records and there was actually a period I wanted to do that sort of thing, actually. So been through lots of changes in my time. Mm -hmm. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.